the authenticity of something valuable is proved by a process of examination and testing. If you're going to buy an expensive diamond, you want to buy one that has been examined and certified by the Canadian Gemological Association or by the American Gem Society. A trade, a gem trade laboratory will, will examine the diamond with a microscope and they will give detailed information about the cut, the clarity, the color, and the carat weight of the particular diamond. They will provide a blueprint giving very detailed explanation of, of what that diamond really is, if it is in fact the genuine article. And if you don't buy a diamond that has this certificate with it, then you are actually in risk, at risk of buying a diamond that is not what it would be claimed to be, a diamond that is in fact a fraud. Many of you may remember here in Kelowna several years ago, there was, was a, a so-called reputable diamond store, a jewelry store, that under the guise of doing repairs and evaluating the value of diamonds, that the owner was actually swapping out the real diamonds for much, much cheaper diamonds. And she was eventually caught and brought to trial. But imagine for a second how it would feel for a wife who, who is, has had the, this diamond as a symbol of her husband's love, to have that diamond go missing, never to be recovered, and how difficult that would be for her. But as important as it is to know that the diamond that we are talking about is indeed genuine, how much more important is it that we know that our faith is genuine? I encounter people again and again who say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But their lives and their words reveal otherwise. They say that they believe in Jesus Christ. They say that he died and rose again. They may even say that he died for their sins. They can give all of the correct Sunday school answers, but their lives and the bulk of their words do not measure up with their profession. The fruit of their lips reveals that the tree of their heart is dead and withered. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we, we discussed church discipline, and we talked about how if somebody's life is characterized by unrepentant sin, you can be pretty sure that this person is not a Christian. But many people, when they hear a statement like that, would say, well, no, that's, that's judgmental. We're told not to judge. True, we're told not to judge, but we're told not to judge according to the flesh. Jesus commanded us to, to judge righteous judgment, righteous judgment. We make judgments all the time. He who, is not, who does not judge is a fool, according to the Bible. Jesus said that if the person in the process of church discipline does not repent when their sin is brought before the church, that you are to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. You judge them but you judge them 
in love and, and tell them to repent and share the gospel with them. Now, the book of James provides a, a great test or a great way to judge whether faith is genuine. And although you may be able to use this book to examine somebody else's faith, I believe the primary burden on James's heart as he was inspired by the Lord was that we were to judge our own hearts. That we were to measure ourselves to see if we were genuinely in the faith, if our faith is the genuine article. There is no question, no question, that is more important in your life than to discern whether your faith is indeed genuine. There are many people who think, think, really think, that they are serving God. But at the end of their lives, when they stand before Jesus, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. There are no worse words that could ever be uttered in our ears than to hear our Lord Jesus say, depart from me. Because if he says to you, depart from me, then your declaration, Lord, Lord, is nothing. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. He has to actually be your Lord. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves whether we are in, to see whether we are in the faith. He says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. So like a report from a trustworthy gem trade laboratory, the book of James gives us a detailed, reliable examination to see whether our faith is indeed real. And so James reveals to us the heart of true faith. I'll come back to that again and again as we study the book of James, that James reveals to us the heart of true faith. Uh, that is the title of this sermon, which is going to serve as an introduction for the book because it's also the central theme of the book of James, the heart of true faith. So James tells us what real faith looks like and how we can know whether we are really in the faith. Now, I believe the central verse of our, of our passage, turn please to, to James chapter 1. The central, central verse in really the whole book of James, I believe, is James 1.22. James 1.22. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Many people hear God's word preached week in, week out. But they are hearers only, they are not doers. They hear what God's word says to them, but they do not obey it. Now this, this theme of, of self-deception is also mentioned here in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
And as we'll see, one of the, one of the tests that James identifies to, to determine whether our faith is indeed genuine is the test of our tongue. Jesus said that, what we, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we say, what comes out of our mouths, reveals whether we are indeed saved or not. So in order to understand what James is saying in this book, you need to look at it through the lens of what James is trying to tell us. That he is trying to show us the heart of true faith. So as we'll see in coming weeks, James reveals a true religion versus a false religion and a true faith versus a false faith. He's going to show us what true religion and true faith look like. And we need to examine ourselves in the light of this letter to see whether what we are doing, whether our religion is really true or whether it's false and whether our faith is faith unto salvation or whether it is a false worldly faith. The reality of our faith is revealed by our works. How do you know that your toaster is a toaster? Well, when you put bread in your toaster, you wait a few minutes and toast pops out. You could put toast in your blender and I don't care how long you wait, you're never going to get toast. But James will also reveal to us whether our toaster is really working. If you put, toaster, to, if you put bread in your toaster and it, and it sits there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, and toast doesn't come out of it, there's something wrong with your toaster. So likewise, if our lives are not producing fruit, if our lives are not looking more and more like that of Jesus Christ, then there's something wrong with our faith. In some cases, there's no faith there at all. But in other cases, which, which I hope and I trust would be the, the case for the vast majority of us, that there's areas that we need to grow in. There's areas that James will reveal that, that, that we don't really measure up to what God's Word is telling us. Ways that we fail. Ways that we don't love other people the way we should when the fruit of our lips does not bring glory to God, when we actually curse others instead of blessing them, when we speak foolish things, when we show favoritism, when we strive after the things of the world, these are the kinds of things that James revealed to our hearts this morning. And I pray that as we study this together, that each one of us will be examining our hearts in the light of what we read. Now, I want to, to really state strongly here, and I, I can't say this strongly enough, that I'm not talking about sinless perfection. None of us is perfect. None of us will be perfect in this life. None of us will be perfect until Jesus Christ comes back or takes us home. But I want to ask you the question, is your life characterized by godliness and growth therein? Or is your life characterized 
by worldliness. Let me ask you another way. Is there an area, or rather what area, of your life is God at work in at this very moment? It's probably that thing that you're thinking of right now. I hope that, that each one of us can identify one area or several areas where the Lord is at work and changing us and growing us and making us more like Jesus. I can say with 100% confidence that none of us have arrived. We still have a long way to go. We are far more sinful than we ever could have imagined. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, with, uh, the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, and it's, it's my usual practice. I like to read one of their prayers at night before I go to bed, and, and one of the things that, that the Puritans really got right that I think we're missing to, to a large extent in our culture is, is a, a high view of God's holiness. A high view of God's holiness. So when you really begin to realize just how holy God is, the holiness to which God is calling us, what will begin to happen is you, you will see your sinfulness. Your sinfulness will be magnified. Now, when your sin gets magnified, there's a couple of different directions you can go. For some people, they just get hardened into their sin. Their conscience gets seared, and they, they, they retreat further into sin and deeper into more heinous and more depraved forms of sin. There's other people that when they see their sinfulness, they, they look into themselves and they, and they feel the weight, they feel the burden of their sin, and they feel crushed under it. It's sad to say, but there's even many Christians who feel that way. I know that in, in my younger years as a, as a Christian, I struggled with assurance of salvation. That's something that will come up a fair bit in the book of James. I struggled with assurance of salvation, so when I fell into sin, it, it created a, more of a burden. But for those of us who really know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the knowledge of our sin is not meant to do that. The knowledge of our sin is, is to make us flee from ourselves and flee to the cross of Christ. And so I, I highly recommend that you read the Valley of Vision and think through the prayers and make those prayers your prayers as they identify their sinful state. But one of the Puritans said, for every time you look at yourself and your sin, look ten times at Christ and the cross. So flee from your sin, flee from, from condemnation, flee from accusation, and flee to Christ. So I really can't say this enough, that, that we need to be so careful that when we see these things, when we study the book of James, that we don't go to a, a sinful self-condemnation or allow the, the condemnation of the devil to take hold of us, but, but let it point us to Christ. After all, we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2, all of us. But I want to ask you this morning, is your life characterized? Is the trajectory of your life, the bent of your life, following after Christ? Christ.
Are you fleeing from those things, the things that God hates? And running to the cross and looking to Jesus as your example and looking to the power that comes only in Christ to obey. That's what the life of faith is all about. There are those who say that they are Christians, but their lives are characterized by sin. 1 John, the the first epistle written by by John the the Apostle, deals with, with very similar subject matter to the book of James. He lists three tests that we can use to identify whether or not we are truly saved. Robert Law called his 1885 publication of his studies in 1 John the test of life because in it are given what he refers to as the three cardinal tests. And the whole, the, it can be pretty much characterized, the book of 1 John can be pretty much characterized by these verses, 1 John 3, 9 and 10. No one that is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the three tests that are identified in the, in the book of John is, well, the first is the theological test. Do you believe what the Bible says about who God is and about who you are? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 3, 23, and 5, 5, 10, and 13. Do you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh? 4, 2. Do you believe that you are a sinner and in need of a Savior? 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The second test that John identifies is the love test. He wrote in 1 John 5.1, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if we love God, we will love other Christians. It's that simple. If we love God, we will love other Christians. Now, admittedly, we don't always make it easy on each other. Sometimes we save our worst behavior for those who are closest to us. But we are called to love one another. We are commanded to love one another. And if you are a Christian, we will love one another. If somebody else has wronged us, we will forgive them. If we have wronged somebody else, we will go to them and seek their forgiveness. But we will also spend time with one another. We, we will delight in doing that. The joy of the real Christian is Christian fellowship. The third test that John identifies is the moral test. So are we practicing righteousness by obeying God's commands? And this is really the, one of the main focal points that James is identifying. Are we being obedient to God's commands as a, as a fruit of true faith? 1 John 3:24 By this we know that we love God sorry by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments so true love for God will reveal itself in the way that we live our lives Jesus said in John 14:15 If you love me keep my commandments So 
in the book of first john we see how orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy correct doctrine leads to correct practice real faith leads to righteous works and that's what james is going to be telling us as well but you see this is where the book of james has actually caused some people to stumble studying the book of james is dangerous it's an intensely practical book it is a very convicting book if you allow the holy spirit to do his work in your heart through it you see if the holy spirit is active in your life studying the book of james will, will reveal again and again and again areas where you fall short james is going to show us the standard that god has for 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 our lives But if you don't see that what James is trying to do is to identify the heart of true faith, this can easily lead to legalism. If, you don't, if you're not careful, you can end up adopting a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps sort of a faith. We can use the book of James to try to superficially fix problems and never let the book of James really get to the heart of the matter. When we, when we try to do that on the surface, we're not allowing God's word to penetrate deep into our hearts. We need to memorize Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and look at the book of James through the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For we are saved by, by grace through faith and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Paul didn't stop there with verse 9 either. He went on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So true faith works. False faith doesn't work. In James 2.17, he says, faith without works is dead. And this is, this is in the middle of, of James, really, his central argument in the letter. This is found in, in, 14, uh, in chapter 2, 14 to 26. Now, I actually preached on this passage when I was in seminary. And the reason that we, had, we were going through the book of James, all the, all the students got to choose a passage from the book of James to preach from, and this was such a controversial pa passage and it had caused so many people to stumble that I really wanted to study it and present it, preach it in front of a seminary professor and a bunch of seminary students who intimately knew the gospel and were, would correct me if I misrepresented what James was trying to say. And so I, I spent a great deal of time working through this passage. Now, a lot of people have a great deal of difficulty trying to reconcile James's comment here in 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? With what Paul says in Romans 4, 2, and 3, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see that? So James is saying here that that Abraham was justified by works, 
And Paul is saying that Abraham was justified by faith, not works. So you can see how there's a tension here. You can see how there's, how there's a struggle here. Martin Luther was so troubled by the letter of James that he referred to James as an epistle of straw. And he even questioned whether James should have been in the canon. And I'll talk more of that when I, when I preach on this particular passage. Jeff Thomas avoided preaching through the letter of James for 33 years in his ministry. He did not consider it suitable because, because James could presume a knowledge of the gospel amongst his readers. And the, the purpose of the letter was to demonstrate the outworkings of it in transformed lives. He said that he could not presume knowledge of the gospel in his congregation in the first 33 years of his ministry. In John MacArthur's introduction to his series on James, he said, it is a curious thing to me that James does not deal with the essence of salvation. He said, there is nothing here about the crucifixion of Christ or his resurrection, nothing about the deity of Christ, nothing about justification, nothing about regeneration, but MacArthur went on to say that James was writing to a people who say they believe. And an understanding of the gospel, he says, was assumed. Well, I'm not Martin Luther, and I'm not Jeff Thomas, and I'm not John MacArthur, and I'm certainly not James, but I am not going to assume a knowledge of the gospel. So each week as I preach through these texts, I'm going to take the advice of C.H. Spurgeon. I'm going to take my text and I'm going to make a beeline to the cross. You see, if you look at James apart from a knowledge of the cross, legalism is going to result. It is the necessary result of trying to look at James apart from the rest of the canon of Scripture. And people so easily, they tend to take one particular verse and they'll zero in on that verse and forget what the rest of the book is saying and forget what the rest of the Bible is saying. We must never do that. We have to look at Scripture in light of Scripture. We allow Scripture to interpret other Scripture and we let the, the less clear passages be enlightened and taught to our hearts by the more clear passage. That's called the analogy of faith or the rule of faith. So unbeliever, the book of James will reveal to you that you need to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Fellow Christian, although your life may look far, far better than it did when it first came to Christ, Christ, you still need the gospel every bit as much today as you did on that first day that you were saved. Because we don't know how deep our sin is. And God in his grace and mercy doesn't just reveal it all to us, but he, he, in his grace, in his mercy, he chips away. He exposes our sin and he deals with it one issue or a few issues at a time so that we're not crushed under the weight of how sinful we still are. But maybe some of you are still twirling around in your mind how to reconcile what James said and what Paul said. Now, I was tempted to, to leave it and let you guys work through that, but I can't do that. I can't do that. It, it's too important of an issue 
And I'm going to just give you a nutshell explanation of, of what's going on here. See, we know that Scripture can never contradict itself. James and Paul cannot contradict each other. But the way to figure this out is by looking at the context. As is always the case, context is key. You need to ask the question of what is the issue that James was dealing with versus what was the issue that Paul was dealing with. You see, James and Paul were dealing with separate issues. They were looking at the same issue from different sides of the coin. So while while Paul was pointing out that there is one plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile, and he was confronting legalism and pointing to justification in God's sight by faith alone, James was pointing out Abraham's obedience and describing Abraham's justification before human eyes, revealing the heart of true faith. That's why we need to keep that in mind as we study this book. So we've had our our wide-angle lens out. We've had a look overall at the picture of James and how James is showing us the heart of true faith. Now let's spend a few minutes before I close with a macro lens where I want to identify the author of the book of James, the recipients, and a few key themes or passages. So first of all, who was James? All the direct information that we're given about James here is in the first part of verse 1. We read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James, which is the English transliteration of of Jacobus, so James James is actually mentioned several times in the New Testament. There's, There's four primary men named James in the New Testament. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. And we don't know much about him apart from the fact that he was one of the 12 disciples and that he was likely the brother of Matthew. Mark 2.4 says Matthew, who was also known as Levi, was the son of Alphaeus. So assuming that this was the same Alphaeus, then Levi, who became Matthew, was the brother of that particular James. The second possible example is James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Luke 6.16 The third possibility is James, the son of Zebedee, the the brother of John, the apostle. He was one of the sons of of thunder, and he was known for his volatile personality. He was also one of the twelve, and one of, of the inner circle of Jesus, along with his brother John and Peter. He was also the first apostle to be martyred. Now, Stephen had already already been martyred, but but we read in Acts uh, 12.2 that uh, that James was martyred in the, during the period of the early church. Now, the timing of his death means that he couldn't possibly have been the author of this epistle. Now, James, James we believe, is actually one of the earlier uh, epistles. Possibly it had been written even before A.D. 49, but, th- but this is after the death of James, the son of Zebedee. So this leaves us with one other James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, throughout church history, it has been believed that, that this James, that the James that wrote the book of James, was actually the brother of Jesus, even though he doesn't mention it directly here in this epistle. 
James, we know, was listed as one of the sons of Mary, Jesus' mother, in Matthew 15.55 and Mark 6.3. Now remember that Mary was a virgin at the time of the birth of Christ, but she went on to have other brothers and sisters. So it really flies in the face of the Roman Catholic teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's a, a direct contradiction of what Scripture teaches on the subject. James is also identified as the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. But the bizarre thing about this James was that he didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. We see that in John 7.5. He was actually skeptical about his brother. Now, can you imagine growing up with a brother or sister who is absolutely perfect? never disobeyed their earthly parents, never disobeyed God in thought or in word or in deed. Now, I know some of you guys have great brothers and sisters, but I'm sure you would testify that they're sinners. This goes to show that the, the, the eye that reveals who Jesus really is is the eye of faith. It's the eye of faith. It's a work of the Holy Spirit because the evidence would have been right there before him. But he denied it. In fact, it wasn't likely, at least until, until he's an eyewitness of the resurrection, that he was converted in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. But we know that James, the brother of Jesus, came to have great authority in the church. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he was presiding over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Now, there's, there's a lesson for us here. There's a lesson for us here in the life of James. How many of us superficially know Jesus, but don't really know him? How many of us here know a lot about Jesus. You may know a ton about Jesus, but I can guarantee that you don't know as much as his brother did. But that type of knowledge is not the knowledge that brings salvation. Do you really know Jesus? Do you savingly know Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus? And that's the sort of thing that James is going to show us. And it probably was one of the motivations that led to the writing of this letter. Because he knew what it was like to live without faith, even though he was so close to Jesus. But now we need to move on to who are the recipients of the letter. Who was this letter addressed to? We need to remember that when we look at the book of James, or, or for, for, that, for that matter, most of the, of the New Testament, we're reading somebody else's mail. This was a letter that was addressed almost 2,000 years ago to real people. It was addressing real needs. We see here that these are referred to as, the ESV says, the, the dispersion, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The NIV calls them the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. Now we know that throughout the history of Israel, again and again the people were scattered Throughout the nations, we, we studied the book of Joshua and showed how they first came into the promised land. But it didn't take very long after that before the Assyrians came along and took them captive. And then they went back to the land, and then the Babylonians 
took them captive and took them out of Israel. And then just prior to the coming of Christ, the Romans did the same thing until the Romans pushed them out of, out of Rome and then they were scattered throughout Europe. So again and again, because of their sin, the people of Israel were scattered throughout the nations and then went back again to the promised land. But the primary recipients of this letter were this particular dispersion. They were the believing Jews who were scattered outside of Palestine as a result of the severe persecution that was happening during the book of Acts. The people were pushed out of Jerusalem and Israel and into the surrounding nations. And this was also a primary, uh, a primary form of evangelism. As these people went out because of persecution, they brought the message of salvation with them. But imagine what the needs of those people would have been. Imagine as they, they went out into these lands as, as strangers in a strange land, what would their particular needs have been? We need to ask ourselves, well, what is the enduring truth for us? Because we too are strangers in a strange land. Sure, we've come from the Ukraine and, and Germany and South Africa and, and many different countries, but we are all strangers in a strange land. This is not our home. We are pilgrims and strangers on this earth. We are seeking a better country. We are seeking a heavenly country. And so we too are, in a sense, the dispersion. We are dispersed throughout the nations. So in many respects, the needs of these particular people are also our needs. But when we think about the trials that they were undergoing, think about the trials that we're facing. This is one of the main themes that is here in the book of James. We see this in, in chapter 2, verse 4. Allow me to, to read this for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Many of us here are experiencing trials at this particular moment. Count a joy, James says, in the midst of these trials. He also talks about trials in, in verses 12 to 15, and also in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. That's one of the true tests, or the tests rather, of true faith, is what happens in your life in the midst of trials. When faith is real, it grows stronger in the midst of trials, and that's why we're told to count it joy. I'll talk more about this next week. It's joy because we know that our faith grows in the midst of trials. I'm sure each person here who has experienced significant trials in their life can testify of the way that they have grown, not just in spite of trials, but they have grown through their trials. I started out this sermon talking about diamonds. Do you know how a diamond is formed? It is formed deep in the earth as a result of intense heat and intense pressure. And it's often associated, diamonds are often associated with volcanic activity. So as we face the heat of this world, as we face the pressures of this world, if your faith is genuine, it will produce a beautiful diamond 
of faith that will bring glory to God and reflect, refract the light of Jesus to all who are around you. We're also told here in this passage about the tongue. The tongue is a test of faith. Look at 126. I mentioned this earlier. If anyone is, thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is foolish, or is, is worthless rather. And he goes into great detail about the tongue in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and talking about, about the tongue being a wicked member that can be set on fire by the, by the fires of hell. He goes into great detail about the damage that the tongue can do, and he says that, that with the tongue we bless and curse. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree produce olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither does a salt pond produce, produce fresh water. So what we say reveals what's going on in our hearts. He also talks about wisdom being a way that reveals what's going on in our heart. Again, verse, chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously. Wisdom is also there in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Now, now chapter 3, verse 13 is another key verse in this, in this book. In many ways parallel to, um, to 122. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is also a reflection of whether your faith is real. Our desires are a reflection of whether our, our faith is real. Worldly desires versus spiritual desires. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. We'll also see how, how when people are rich in this life versus, and seeking the riches of this life rather than, than, than seeking to commit all they are and all they have to God, what that reveals whether faith is genuine. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, chapter 5, 1 to 6. Now, it seems that, that the, these people were particularly prone to favoritism, that they were respecting those who had money and looking down on those who didn't. And so that's another example. The first half of chapter 2, in verses 1 to 13, that is also a test of whether faith is real. So I trust that, that as we study through this book together and as we hold up James as a mirror to our hearts and as we examine our lives in the light of what James is going to show us, I trust that it will bring conviction in the heart of the believer that will cause us to turn to Christ. And I trust that it will bring condemnation in the heart of the unbeliever that will result in repentance that leads to life, all by the Spirit of God.